0: Amen. Well, will you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the letter to the Romans and to Romans chapter two today? We'll be looking at verses twelve through uh, sixteen together. But I'm going to go ahead and begin my reading from verse one, but just preaching on verses twelve. Through 16. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God? This is the very Word of God. Let's give it our attention. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers. And its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 16 speaks of a day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. When most people think about God, what do they think of? Do they think of him as a righteous judge? Do they think of him as being perfectly holy and just? Michael Kruger has written that most people have a very different view of God from the one presented in the Bible. Most people view God, if he exists at all, as a pretty affable fellow, as generally laid back, The kind of guy who stays out of your business unless you need a little help. He's a bit like that cool, uninvolved parent who's not worried about how you live as long as you're happy. In my experience, what Kruger says is proved to be mostly true. If people believe in God or in Christ, then he is usually the self-styled, all-loving and non-judgmental, fatherly figure-in-the-sky sort of God. Is it any wonder, then, that most people inherently hate the idea of a God who judges, a God who is holy and who actually sends people to hell for their sins? Or... If they think that some people actually deserve to go to hell for their sins, they think it's reserved for the really wicked types. You know, the Hitlers and the Stalins. Jonathan Edwards once famously wrote that almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. We so often hear that my God is a God of love He would not judge. But the God of the Bible is not a one-dimensional being who is all love and all patience. He is a God who is at the same time perfectly holy and righteous and pure. And the fact of the matter is that when people meet God in the Bible, it is never a casual, chummy sort of introduction. Hey, bro, how are you? heard a lot of good things about you. No, it's usually a terrifying, profoundly life-changing encounter. Life-changing because it immediately brings into very sharp focus two things that were previously out of focus. Namely, the reality of God's absolute holiness on the one hand, and the reality of sinful man's uncleanness on the other I think for a moment about Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, as he describes that encounter. Uh, If you're familiar with it, or unfamiliar with it, this is what he says. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, that's angels, and one called to another, and they said, Holy, 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 holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That's a pretty, awesome, and terrifying vision. And what was Isaiah's immediate response to this encounter of God's? holy glory. He said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's throne is the place where he sits in judgment, a place where the heavenly realm witnesses to the perfections of his holiness. And so no sooner does Isaiah see the Lord clearly than he finally sees himself clearly. Well, here in Romans chapter 2, Paul has been describing the Lord as a holy and righteous judge an impartial judge. And I need to remind you that as we pick things back up here in chapter 2, that we are stepping back into the middle of a very carefully crafted argument, an argument which will not actually conclude until we get to chapter 3 and verse 9. And when it finally does conclude, Paul's conclusion is that we have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, As it is written, none is righteous. And so here, as Paul describes God as the judge, he has asked these incredibly searching questions. Right? Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? He's reminded us that there is a day that God has appointed for judgment and that men are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He has laid out the basis on which he will judge. He will render to each one according to his works. And he has described the judgments that he will render. That to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then in his final comment, before we get to our passage today, he says that God will do this with complete impartiality. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. God is glorious in his impartiality. And today then, as we pick things back up in verses 12 through 16, Paul is continuing this argument And he is supporting his statement that God is a holy and impartial judge. And let me just give you three points here to help you as we think about him as an impartial judge. First, we see here in verses 12 through 13, the judgment of the law as God's impartial judgment is demonstrated through the law written in commandments. Uh, Secondly, we see the judgment of the light in verses 14 through 15 as God's impartial judgment is demonstrated through the light of conscience and that law written on the heart. And then finally, in verse 16, we see the judgment of the Lord as God's impartial judgment is demonstrated through the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. The judgment of the law, the judgment of the light, and the judgment of the Lord. Now, it's important to see as we look at this first point together that this whole little section in verses 12 through 16 again is written in support of what he's just said that God shows no impartiality. Uh, and that's proved by the fact that Paul begins with the, this little word for, right? Uh, if there was no break or no versification in the text of Scripture, it would simply read God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law. right? The four is there to help us understand that Paul is making a supporting argument for that statement, that God is impartial. Now let me prove it. And verses 12 through 13 come in as the first bit of proof to undergird that statement. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now you ask, how does that actually prove the point? Well, it proves the point because what Paul is saying is that it doesn't matter one bit whether you have lived without God's law, his revealed law on Sinai, or whether you have lived with God's law. Everyone is condemned. Let me put it another way. Paul is telling the Romans, it doesn't matter whether they had lived as Gentiles and had never even heard of the Ten Commandments, or whether they had lived as Jews and had grown up their whole life studying and memorizing the Ten Commandments. And the reason that it doesn't matter is because Even the people who had the Ten Commandments and studied the Ten Commandments and memorized the Ten Commandments were all condemned by it. They were condemned by it because they couldn't keep it. It's not enough just to have the law. It's not enough just to hear the law. It's not enough to be a student of the law and to memorize the law. All that is for nothing, Paul says, if you don't do the law. If you do not do what the law says. That's why Paul says it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. The problem is there have been no doers. (laughs) There have been no doers of the law who are therefore justified. However, the Jews may boast in the law, they have not been doers of the law. So look at verse 23. It says, You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law, for it's written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, I hope that's clear. But just in case it isn't, let me be super clear (laughs) about what I am saying, about what Paul is saying, and about what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that there is, in fact, some select group of righteous law keepers, some doers of the law who will be justified before God on the basis of their works. You could read this statement in abstraction from his whole argument You could read, for it's the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And you could think that Paul is actually promoting some form of works righteousness here. And many people do read this that way. But that would not only break up the whole flow of his argument, it would also stand in direct contrast, not only with his conclusion that all Jews and all Greeks are under sin, But it would stand in contrast to everything he so clearly teaches in the New Testament. Like in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Nobody. Or, what he says in Galatians 3.21, if there had been a law given that could give life, well, then righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul is not suggesting that there is actually a group of people who will be justified by their works. What Paul is saying, what he is doing, is he is showing exactly how the scriptures have imprisoned everyone under sin. He is showing, as he will say in the next chapter, that the law shuts every mouth so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, Romans three nineteen through 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The Jews who had the law, they will be condemned by the law because only those who do the law can be justified. They will be condemned because they haven't done the law. But what about the Gentiles? You say it seems hardly fair that they should be held to a standard that they never actually heard. They didn't grow up hearing the law. They didn't grow up in synagogue. They didn't grow up memorizing the Ten Commandments and studying it week in and week out. And after all, if they didn't know it, they didn't get a chance to keep it, did they? Shouldn't they have an excuse on the day of judgment? Well, that's where Paul goes next. Because even though they did not have access to God's moral requirements written on tablets of stone, written and passed down through the scrolls, they did have access to his moral requirement through their conscience in the form of the law written on their hearts. And so having considered here the judgment of the law on people's conduct, let's consider next the judgment of the light in people's conscience. Verses 14 and 15 For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So what do you think? Are the Gentiles off the hook on the day of judgment? You're all Gentiles, presumably, Are you off the hook? Not at all. Paul says that whenever they do by nature what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. If you've ever read the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I encourage you to do it. It's a wonderful document that we confess as a church. You might remember that it actually begins, the whole confession begins with these words, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give man that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Uh, The confession here speaks, on the one hand, of an external witness to God's goodness, wisdom, and power. It calls this external witness the works of creation and providence. You can look around God's world, right? We saw that in Romans chapter 1. It is on display. But the confession also speaks of an internal witness. You don't have to look outside. There is an internal witness in the heart of every man, which it calls the light of nature. And maybe you've read the confession and you've got, I wonder why it calls it the light of nature. Well, because it's reflecting on Romans 2, that people by nature do what the law requires. That is simply to say that every person in every culture throughout the entire world and throughout all of time, I think I've captured everybody, everyone has an internal sense of what is right and what is wrong. What Irons calls an internal warning system. It produces a sense of self approval or self condemnation in relation to one's conduct. It starts beeping. You shouldn't do this. This is wrong. The Bible just calls it a conscience. God has not left people without a conscience without this light of nature, so that they know not only that some things are right and that some things are wrong, but they also feel good or bad about it. Their conscience accuses them and excuses them. They know it's wrong to murder, to commit adultery, to steal, to bear false witness. And they feel bad when they do it at least at the beginning, because the conscience can be seared. It can become hardened. But people know it in their hearts, because the Bible says that even though they don't have the law, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's courtroom language, isn't it? The language of accusation. It's the language of a prosecuting attorney bringing charges against someone. When people do what they know is wrong, that internal warning system starts sounding the alarm and their guilty conscience begins to accuse them. Other times, their conscience makes them feel good about themselves. They feel that they've done what was right and it excuses them. Of course, the problem is that nobody's conscience excuses them all the time. And by and large, it accuses them. And even when they do do what's right, they do it for wrong reasons. So you see, Paul's argument here is it's watertight. First, he says that the Gentiles who are without the law are condemned without the law. If If you grew up and you've never heard of God's law, you're still condemned without the law. Then he says the Jews who have the law are condemned by the law. If you grew up and you had the law and you studied it, you're still condemned by the law. Then he gives the reason the Jews are condemned by the law. Then he gives the reason the Gentiles are condemned by the law. You see, it's what every student of theology loves when they discover finally this Hebrew structure, the chiasm. And they suddenly think they are so smart but it's really everywhere in the Bible. And that's how Paul structures this argument. Gentiles, Jews, Jews, Gentiles. All to make the point crystal clear that both Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles, are condemned before the standard of God's holy law. All right. We've seen the judgment of the law. We've seen the judgment of the light. Are you ready for some good news yet? (laughs) Let's look at the judgment of the Lord in verse 16. When will this happen? Paul says it will happen on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Bible is very clear that there will be a day of judgment. The day of judgment... That he will exercise through his son Jesus Christ. You might think of Paul's statement in Acts 17, where he, he stood up and he told them at the Areopagus that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he is commanding all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. There is a fixed day a historical day in the plan and purpose of God when he has appointed his son to sit as the judge over all the earth. And he's given proof of this by raising him and seating him on his throne. That is a sobering reality that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there God will judge the secrets of men according to the gospel. Now, here is the first time, I I believe, the first time in Romans that I have a real disagreement with the ESV's translation of this last sentence. Uh, The ESV departs from other translations, and it has to do with the word order and with the difference in meaning that the ESV's word order gives to the Greek. The ESV changes the word order of the Greek. Uh, You may want to look at your Bibles for this. It's a little technical. The esv I'm going to tell you what the Greek says in its word order. The ESV changes the word order of the Greek so that instead of reading, on that day when God judges the secrets of men according to my gospel through Jesus Christ, you'll see the ESV reads, on that day when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Well, what's the difference, and why does it make such a big deal? Well, the difference is that the ESV makes it sound like Paul is simply confirming something about what he teaches in the gospel. That part of his gospel message is that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, and that's true. That is part of what Paul taught. But I do not think that is at all what Paul intends here. Rather, I think he, what he intends is actually far more glorious than that. What he intends is not just to confirm that judgment is a part of his gospel message, but rather that the gospel itself, that the gospel that he preaches is the very standard that God will use in the judgment on the last day on that day when God judges the secrets of men according to my gospel. You see the difference? It's important. What Paul is saying is that it's the gospel, and it is how people have responded to the gospel that will determine their eternal destiny. What is the standard of the gospel by which people will be judged? Thankfully, we don't have to guess because Paul tells us uh, in the next chapter. He, he refers to it as the law of faith. Then what becomes of our boasting, he says? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Here is the impartiality of God that God justifies The circumcised and the uncircumcised by faith. In that final day of judgment, when the secrets of your heart are revealed, when all that you have done is brought to light before the judgment seat of Christ, when the law and your own conscience stand and bear witness against you, how will you be judged? Paul says it will be according to the gospel. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, and here I think it's very clear, that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is the question. And it's it's such an important question. When you stand before Christ and the question is asked, What did you do with the gospel? What did you do with my son? Did you obey the gospel? That is to say, did you look in faith to Jesus? Did you cry out to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? That's how you obey the gospel. You obey the gospel in faith. Did you place all of your faith in Christ? Did you turn aside from all of your boasting and every claim to self-righteousness and cast yourself wholly on the perfections of who he is, on the righteousness of his life, on his sacrificial death, Beloved, if you're a Christian, that's your hope. It's your only hope. And let me just encourage you. There could be no other judge more favorably disposed to your wretched plight than the Lord Jesus Christ, who bears the marks of the cross on his hands. You could have no greater judge. When the judge walks in the room and you look over and you breathe a sigh of relief because you see it's Jesus. The judge is the one who bore your transgressions, your sins, your iniquities, in his body to the cross, who endured the wrath of God for all of them, and then who left all of your sins buried in the grave when he rose again on the third day. the judge is the one who has sustained you through all of your life. He has sustained you in faith in your darkest and most desperate moments, who comforted you in every heartache, who has restored your soul like streams in the desert. The judge is the one who has been your most faithful friend and advocate. Will he change on that day? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. On that day, God will judge the secrets of your heart and he will judge them according to the gospel through Jesus Christ. And when that standard is brought to bear upon you, you will, as our catechism says, be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. You will stand... As surely as Jesus Christ, the judge himself, stands, because you are clothed in his righteousness, if you are trusting in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ, who is there to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who has been raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. There is nothing to condemn you. But the opposite is true as well. And it's not comforting. It's terrifying. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, but like the chaff will be driven away. If having heard the gospel, if having received the knowledge of the truth, if you turn away from Christ, and you go on in unbelief and deliberate sin. The Bible says there is only the fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Because if anyone has set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy, how much worse punishment do you think will be reserved for the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? Beloved, that was not simply written to the world at large. That was written to the church. It wasn't written to the unbelieving world. It's written to those who actually belong to the visible church. And yet who are not trusting in Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You shouldn't think that because you come to church that you can live in unbelief and unrepentant sin. You will stand before Christ and the secrets of your heart will be exposed and you will be judged by what you did with this message of the gospel. Do not presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. These are meant to lead you to repentance and to faith in Christ. Now that's a sobering thing to say. But it's one thing to presume on the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God, beloved. And it's another thing to rest In the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God. Because God is kind, and He is forbearing, and He is patient. And so you ask, Pastor Joel, how do I know? How do I know whether I am just presuming on God's kindness and forbearance or patience? How do I know if I'm just being presumptuous or if I'm actually trusting in Him? Because the question is not whether or not you are a sinner. You and I both know that. Whether you grew up with the law and in church or not in church and without the law. We're all condemned by it. The question is, as Christians, when we sin, how do we respond to the gospel? The gospel The gospel is not something that was just for us when we came first to faith in Christ. The gospel is something that is for us every day of our life. When you sin, do you feel a sense of sorrow and conviction over what you have done? Do you feel that sting of conscience? And more importantly, does it grieve your heart that you have offended the Lord who has been with you all of your life? who has stood by you, who has been patient and forbearing with you? Does it break your heart that you're still a sinner? It breaks my heart. I cannot wait for glory, not just to see Christ, but finally to be free from sin. But in grief and sorrow, do you look to Jesus? Do you look in joy and hope back to your Savior, for grace and mercy to help in time of need. Do you look, even if it's been 70 times seven, Lord, I keep doing the same sins over and over and over again. Do you come over and over and over again like the tax collector saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? Does your soul cry out like Isaiah? Isaiah? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell upon among a people of unclean lips. If you feel that and you turn to Christ, well, what did the Lord do for Isaiah? He had one of the angels take coal off the altar of sacrifice and bring it and touch his unclean lips that very altar that was used where sacrificial animals were laid, a burning ember was taken and touched to his lips. And just as that coal was taken off the altar and touched to the unclean lips of Isaiah, so the the coal of Christ's satisfaction is taken off the altar of the cross and is touched to your unclean soul. God is kind and forbearing and patient. And there's no greater proof of that than the fact that Jesus, your most favorable judge, is going to judge you according to the gospel. Doesn't that make the judgment day tolerable? To know that when that day comes, you will be judged by the gospel that says, My righteous perfections stand in your place. My death satisfies your curse. Enter into your rest. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these are serious and sobering words. As you remind us, that you are a just and impartial judge and that there is not a human being alive who does not stand condemned either by the law or by their own conscience. And yet, Lord, though you will not justify anyone according to works, you will justify both the circumcised and the uncircumcised according to faith. As we place our faith and all of our hope trust in Jesus Christ, your Son, and the meritorious obedience of his life, and the satisfactory obedience of his death. Lord, I pray that you would cause faith to rise up in us, this law of faith, that it might cling to Christ. And Lord, in clinging to Christ, Lord, would you transform us and make us new, so that we might delight in obedience, so that we might Desire to follow after you so that we might walk in your ways to the glory of your name so that we might be a testimony to the whole world. Lord, we who believe, we long for that day when we will be finally and fully set free from sin. And we long for that day when we will look into your eyes with unveiled face and see the one who has been with us in life and in death forever. And so we love you and we ask that you would work these things in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And as Sadie is seated, she is now seated together with us at this table, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, this table is, of course, a the sacrament which the Lord has instituted to be a sign and seal of our communion that we have with Him. A communion that we have with Him through His death and resurrection, through His body and blood. That is what the meal itself represents and signifies through the elements. Jesus said that the bread represents His body and that Bread is torn to pieces, just as the body of our Lord was torn to pieces in in order that we might have the forgiveness of sins. The wine, as it comes to you today, it comes to you poured out. It comes to you reminding you that the, the blood of your Savior had to be shed. It had to be poured out in order that your soul might be ransomed and redeemed. And so as we come to this today, we are reminded that our judgment has passed. It is as though the judgment of that final day has already intruded into the present. That is what it means to be justified now. It means that that judgment of the final day has already found its way into time and history and has been declared over you that you are forgiven, that you are accounted righteous in his sight, not for anything in you, but for the righteousness of Christ alone imputed to you. And so today as we come, even though we come weighed down, even though we come with a sense of our own guilt and shame, even though we come with sorrow, once again, because we have grieved our Savior, nevertheless, Jesus says, come, come to this table, because you need this. You need this grace. You need this reminder to you of your forgiveness, of our reconciliation, of our communion. The communion that you have with me, the communion with, that you have with one another. Now, that also means that this table only truly belongs to those who have communion with Christ and with his church. It means that this table, while it includes everyone, Who professes their faith in Christ, who's been baptized into his name, uh, who are walking in faith and repentance, it excludes those who are not. And so I must give you the warning of Scripture that the Scripture tells you that you should not eat and drink these elements in an unworthy manner, but you should come in a worthy manner. And that worthy manner, again, is not your own worthiness. It is your faith to feed upon Christ and his worthiness. So even though you might let these elements pass by you today, even if you are not in Christ and you know that you do not belong to Christ, I I would call upon you today, do not let Christ pass you by. The gospel has been proclaimed to you today, and you are responsible for what you've heard. And the right answer to that is not to turn and walk away The right answer to that is to cry out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and save me. And if you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Christ, please come and talk to me after the service. I would love to talk to you about this. But as we have gathered around this table now, let's pray and ask that the Lord, our Savior, would sanctify these holy elements and set them apart for this use. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now, we would not come trusting in anything in us. We know that there is nothing good in us. We know that the law condemns us. We know that our own conscience condemns us. We know that our enemy, the devil, accuses us. But we come because you have called us to come and invited us to come. We come because we trust in your grace to us that in spite of our our breaking of the law, in spite of our guilty consciences, you have taken all of that upon yourself You have borne our sins and iniquities to the tree in order that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. And so, Lord, help us now to come with faith to feed upon you and love to feed upon you. And feed us here today with your grace. So, Lord, we ask that you would set apart these elements for this holy use as we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.